Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is Friday night and it is time to talk about science and skepticism. And so before we get started, um, well, normal things, which is that you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page. Uh, you can also find this and other episodes as a podcast on your uh, favorite podcatcher. Now, before we begin tonight, I got a robocall just a few minutes ago. So uh, here at the studio, and I wanted to start out with this PSA, which is that if you live in Northampton, and you either don't have a landline or haven't received a call yet, uh, there is a recreational water ban now in place. This means no watering of lawns or flowers or anything like that between 9am and 5pm. No washing cars by hand or washing houses or driveways. So for instance, power washing a house, unless you are planning to uh, paint it immediately or within the next couple of days, the ban will remain in effect for at least a week uh, due to the requirement that the Mill River meet or exceed the required levels for a week before the ban can be lifted. So uh, the Mill River has slowed enough that they have had to do this. It requires three days worth of uh, sort of turbid, low water in the Mill River. And so basically just no watering your lawn. Uh, you can still water your garden or uh, your flowers, but you have to do it with a hand hose or a watering can. You can't do it with irrigation or um, automatic sprinklers. So automatic sprinklers should be turned off unless they are set to go off after 5 p.m. and before 9 a.m. And so, yeah, uh, even though it doesn't seem like it, even though it seems odd that we're having one already, we haven't gotten a ton of rain, even though it looks pretty nice out and there isn't really any sort of drought conditions. There have been uh, several days where I think it was supposed to rain and then it really didn't. And so we just haven't had all that much rain. So that's what happens and the rivers get low and we have to start just taking precautions. There's nothing I think to be worried about yet, uh, but it's just a good precaution to take. And so, of course, I would say my public, my private opinion on lawns is that you should do away with them. <laughs> uh, you should just let the natural sort of weeds grow in your lawn and uh, it'll end up being a lot greener without needing any kind of irrigation or watering at all. Just let the natural ground cover take over. Um, part of my uh, front lawn of sorts is usually covered in um, wild uh, violets and they're, it's actually quite a lovely uh, ground plant. And so I am definitely pro uh, green weedery and anti-lawn in general. Okay, so let us actually move on now and talk about our regularly scheduled topics. And so I wanted to start out tonight with yet another installment in the saga of the uh, whether or not there is a mysterious and as unyet detected planet nine orbiting far out at the edge of the solar system. So we've talked about that several times. There's been some good evidence for the fact that there are these weird orbited objects in our solar system. And a really good reason why that might be would be that there is this planet out there that is really far away, but is also pretty massive and is acting upon these objects. However, a new contender has entered the ring. So a team led by Dr. Anne-Marie Madigan has actually created a model of the early evolution of the Kuiper Belt objects, which suggests that objects such as the dwarf planet Sedna could be caused by complex gravitational forces of trans-Neptunian objects, which is um, basically another name for these things. It's basically anything that's beyond the uh, orbit of Neptune. Uh, so they think that there might not need to be a mysterious planet nine out there that we haven't yet found. 
Now, uh, Sedna is one of those really weird objects that's out there. It has an orbit that means that it takes 11,400 years for it to make a single journey around the sun. And it is always at least 20 times further from the sun than Pluto. However, it it is absolutely uh, rotating around the sun and therefore is part of our solar system. The picture we have in our head is a lot of little moons floating around the solar system, interacting with comets, Madigan, an assistant professor in the Department of Astrophysics and Planetary Science at the University of Colorado Boulder, said during a news conference earlier this month. Now, Madigan and her undergraduate student, Jacob Fleissig, presented their results at the 232nd meeting of the American Astronomical Society in Denver, Colorado. Now, the hypothesis suggests that larger objects are moving more slowly than smaller ones in the area beyond Neptune. And so as those smaller objects kind of whiz by the slower ones, the slower, more massive objects, the collective gravitational effects build up and are eventually enough to knock the larger objects out into those erratic orbits. Now, what they did was that they added the mass of distinct objects into the model. And this was actually a new approach, according to the team, because most researchers use models that include massless objects because the computing power needed to handle all of that extra information is considered too costly a lot of times. Their model actually only granted mass to 400 of what is assumed to be thousands of of objects, and yet they still achieved good results. Now, of course, with as with the Planet 9 hypothesis, there are definitely caveats. There is a clustering of objects along a similar tilt, which is frankly, better explained at the moment by the Planet Nine hypothesis. And it turns out that if this is correct, instead of finding one big planet out there far away, we would have to be able to identify a large number of uh, TNOs that are suspected but not yet confirmed. So basically, we either need to find a large planet or we need to find hundreds of tiny little objects that we suspect are out there, but which are very hard to detect because uh, they are small and they're not particularly massive and they're going pretty fast. And that's pretty hard to uh, be able to see with our technology because a lot of our stuff is sort of looking at further afield, things that aren't moving pretty much at all from our perspective. I mean, they are definitely moving, but from because they're so far away, they're not moving in our field of vision very much. Um, But these sorts of things are relatively fast considering what we are looking at. And, you know, again, I always remind people that even though it seems really counterintuitive that you can get these amazing pictures of these galaxies far, far away, The thing is, is that that's a galaxy. So you're not seeing the individual planets. You're not seeing even the individual stars necessarily. That's a whole galaxy. So you're seeing basically a picture of the Earth. And what this is, is that it's basically trying to find a picture of the uh, town hall in a tiny little town from the exact same vantage point that you took this picture of the entire Earth. So, you know, it's a little bit hard sometimes to uh, be able to manage that. And so for now, the jury is still out on just what is causing the weird orbits of objects like Sedna. Uh, But again, I will keep bringing you more tales of this because I think it's really interesting. It's a great example of how people sort of theoretically work out what they think might be happening. And hopefully, fingers crossed, at some point, this is the kind of thing that we can really actually get a uh, definitive answer on because at some point, hopefully, we will actually find one of these objects, either a bunch of the tiny objects or we will find Planet Nine. I mean, people are actively looking for it right now.
Actually, what I was going to say earlier was that I always like to remind people about Pluto. So until New Horizons got there the other uh, last year, we basically, the only pictures we had of Pluto were pixelated smudges. (laughs) And, you know, this is Pluto, which is, you know, actually closer often to the to the sun than any of these objects, uh, real or uh, hypothesized. And so basically all we had was a sort of bright smudge, a pixelated bright smudge, and we had to actually send New Horizons out to it, uh, taking several years to actually get out there in order to find out what it actually looked like because our uh, Earth-based telescopes just weren't going to be able to do it. It's just it just was not something that we could do from the earth. So yeah, anyways, let us move on now, but uh, stay in space. And so you've probably heard of the Van Allen belt, uh, but you might not know exactly what it is. And so there are actually two huge torus-shaped belts that encircle the planet, and they're composed of energetic charged particles that hover between 620 and 3,700 miles from the Earth. Now, this is charged particles, radiation, and uh, if you are frequent if you frequent any conspiracy websites or if you know anyone who's a sort of conspiracy aficionado, uh, this is often one of the things that is used against the idea that we, for instance, went to the moon because you would have to cross through the Van Allen belt and people say you can't survive that, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you can and you just have to have proper shielding and you have to go through it basically as fast as you can. Uh, but most of what we're doing, most of our uh, space, uh, the like for instance, the International Space Station and things like that, those are actually in near-Earth orbit and they are underneath basically the edge of any of the Van Allen belt. And so the Van Allen belt is out beyond the range of any of our satellites, any of our uh, orbiters. Uh, the International Space Station, all of that is inside of the area that is sort of, I don't want to say below because, you know, it does, it's not really, if you think of it from being on the ground, it's below the edge of the Van Allen belts. So they don't actually affect any of that. So there's no reason why we can't have satellites and the International Space Station and people walking in space. It's just, it's near Earth space and it is uh, basically just beyond the edge of the atmosphere and it's not really in the way of the Van Allen belt. Okay, so let's get back to actually talking about what we're uh, discovering. And so in 2013, researchers used NASA's Van Allen probes uh, to observe that a type of electromagnetic fluctuation called a chorus wave propels electrons through the Earth's atmosphere. And so now a new study using both that data um, as well as from five probe, the five probes that make up the themis or <laughs> it's a good thing some of these things have uh, acronyms because they're very long titles. So this is the Time, History of Events, and Macroscale Interactions During Substorms Array, or Themis. <laughs> and uh, so that was actually deployed to study the auroras at both the North and South Poles. That's those five probes. And so between those two sets of data, they have confirmed that the chorus waves uh, both are the main source for the electron's speed increase and for pulsating auroras. And what's really cool is that we can listen to a sound file of those chorus waves. So let's play that right now.
Sorry, that next one was something different. Um, <laughs> and so basically what this is, is you're hearing the sound of that sort of speeding up. And that is the acceleration. And so you can actually hear it. And so that is very, very cool. Um, and so NASA officials note that the waves sound basically like a flock of noisy birds is how they put it. Uh, and so they generate a series of rising chirps in the plasma field that surrounds the Earth. Uh, and the particles give off energy when they interact with charged particles in the upper atmosphere. And that's the really upper atmosphere, obviously. And so they found that 87% of particles are sped up in this way. And that's actually referred to as local acceleration. We've had studies in the past that looked at individual events, so we knew local acceleration was going to be important for some of the events, but I think it was a surprise just how important local acceleration was. Alex Boyd, lead author of the new work and a researcher at New Mexico Consortium uh, at Los Alamos, New Mexico, said in a statement, researchers had also known that a process called radial diffusion uh, this is where solar storms release charged particles, and those impact particles in the Van Allen belt and accelerate them, that that was actually responsible for some of the acceleration. The new research, however, shows that, quote unquote, mountains of energetic particles were growing in one place. Uh, and so that is in uh, contrast to the other particles that would have been speeding up and falling inward toward the earth um, as they were being slowly accelerated by radial diffusion. The results finally address this main controversy we've been having about the radiation belts for a number of years, Boyd said again in a statement. And uh, so, yeah, it's really interesting. And I know it's kind of, uh, you know, maybe not terribly uh, easy to visualize, but honestly, I just like a good sound clip every once in a while. And I thought that was a really cool thing. Um, I know that I've talked about, I talked about a couple of months ago, basically people who are starting to try and use uh, audio sort of clips and things like that to visualize or, or audio, um, oralize, I should say, is the term, uh, data. And so you can see there is on the, uh, you know, in the articles about this, there's also a sort of uh, animation of what's going on. And you can see that animation and it can make sense. But I like the fact that they also have the clip of the actual oral data that you can listen to and hear that sort of rising and falling tone that talk that shows where it's hitting the Van Allen belt and actually um, accelerating particles. So very cool. All right. So let's move on now and uh, talk about a couple of stories that I actually didn't get to last week, but I definitely wanted to. Uh, they're not particularly timely, so I thought I would uh, actually get to them this week. And so the first one is uh, revisits one of my personal favorite topics. So if you are a regular listener, you know that I really enjoy stories about how pre-modern people were good at things that we really wouldn't suspect normally. Uh, so this is a new study that suggests that Incan doctors were actually better at skull surgery than American Civil War doctors obviously with some caveats. <laughs> and so um, the art and skill of trepanation, uh, that is the drilling, cutting, or scraping of a hole into a skull, has been practiced for thousands of years. It's actually one of the oldest known medical procedures found in human remains. And so Peru, where there's an acrid, uh, an arid climate, excuse me, uh, if it was acrid, it would not be well, it would not help preservation, uh, but it is arid. And so therefore, a large portion of ancient remains uh, tend to be preserved. And so among those that show signs of trepanation, there are uh, 
sort of signs in the bone that the person began to heal and recover in up to 80% of cases. Now, remember, this is completely without any anesthesia, without any antibiotics, um, unless, you know, uh, sort of the local, uh, you know, flora and fauna, I'm sure they had uh, herbs and things like that, that could probably help to some extent. But uh, as we know, uh, pre-modern medicine is much more, I suppose I shouldn't say much more, was uh, not exactly well uh, regulated. And in the sense that it, there, the the um, active ingredients that were being used weren't necessarily being pulled out in order to have really huge therapeutic uh, therapeutic abilities. And so, you know, if you take willow bark, it might help a little bit for your headache or your fever, but it'll do it better if you take an aspirin, that sort of a thing. Um, and so David Kushner, a neurologist at the University of Miami in Florida, teamed up with John Verano, a bioarchaeologist at Tulane University in New Orleans. Uh, And so what they did was they created a systematic study of trepanation success, a success rate across different cultures and periods. So the team examined 59 skulls from Peru's southern coast, uh, dated to between 400 and 200 BCE. Uh, They found 421 from Peru's central highlands from 1000 to 1400 CE and 160 from the area around Cusco, the capital of the Incan Empire from the early 1400s to the mid 1500s CE. Now, it's fairly easy to tell the immediate outcome of such surgery. Those skulls that showed no sign of healings meant that the person died either during or soon after the procedure, while smooth bone around the edges shows that the person lived for at least uh, some time, if not for many, many years after the surgery. Now, just 40% of the earliest group showed signs of success but 53% of the next group survived. And by the Inca period, 75 to 83% of the people showed signs of having survived long enough to heal. A small sample of nine skulls from the Northern Highlands between 1000 and 1300 CE showed a remarkable 91% survival rate. And so they also noted that the techniques used actually, uh, not uh, unsurprisingly, improved over time. They found smaller holes and less cutting or drilling with more careful grooving techniques as time went on. This would have increased the chances of not breaching the dura matter, uh, which is the covering of the brain uh, that is between the skull and uh, the actual brain. There's a sort of... um, um, almost like a, a, a membrane. There's a membrane uh, between those two things, and that's the dura mater. And so not uh, breaching that would have meant a decreased risk of infection because that's part of what it does is that it protects the brain uh, from outside uh, from outside um, you know pathogens and things like that. Now we're looking, at what we're looking at is over a thousand years of refining their methods, says Corey Ragsdale, a bioarchaeologist at Southern Illinois University at Edwardsville, um, who wasn't actually involved in the study but was asked about it. They're not just getting lucky, the surgeons performing this are so skilled. One skull actually showed signs of five successful surgeries. <laughs> Uh, And so the team then looked at records for the Civil War and found that 46 to 56 percent of cranial surgeries were unsuccessful with the patient actually dying. Now, this is compared again to just 17 to 25 percent during the end period uh, when the uh, skulls were sampled from around Cusco, the Incan capital. Now, of course, I said with caveats. So it is important to note, and uh, they absolutely do, that the kinds of injuries that 
uh, first caused the trauma would have been quite different uh, between the Civil War patients, uh, many of them having endured gunshot wounds. And of course, the Inca weren't really dealing with gunshot wounds uh, at any time during this period. Um, I think this is all sort of pre-contact for the most part. Uh, yeah, the mid-1500s. So, um, you know, the mid-1500s, you might have started to get a couple of musket ball uh, injuries, but really uh, most of it would have been sort of crushed skulls or uh, people who just had migraines or, uh, you know, had mental health issues or um, things like that that they were using it for. And of course, we don't know exactly why any of those patients were actually given trepanation. Um, it's hard to detect in a lot of in a lot of cases why it was done, but it is very cool that so many of them were able to survive uh, in a very um, sort of low-tech uh, situation like that. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, <laughs> let's move back to the present for a minute and do a little bit of uh, skepticism. So uh, back in the present, I think that my old nemesis, Dr. Oz, uh, could probably learn a thing or two from those amazing Inca surgeons. Now, uh, I'm sure I know that the Inca clearly were interested in the stars, but uh, so Dr. Oz, you may have uh, heard recently tweeted, and the tweet is gone now, uh, but a slideshow presentation remains on his website, and it starts with the sentence, for centuries, we have used astrological signs to better understand elements of our personality and to partially account for the way we interact with the outside world. Sigh. It goes on to say, according to Rebecca Gordon, an astrologer and author of uh, Your Body and the Stars, your astrological sign can help pinpoint distinct regions where you might experience health problems. That's right. Dr. Oz is giving legitimacy to the idea that astrology might have something to do with your health. <sighs> Apparently, quote unquote, many astrologers have linked the image of the Vitruvian man with the zodiac cycle to indicate which sign governs over specific parts of the body. Now, I very much hope that I don't need to spend pretty much any time uh, explaining why this is completely and utterly ridiculous. Uh, there is absolutely no evidence. There's no way, um, you know, given the laws of physics, there is no way for the stars, quote unquote, to have any effect on human beings in any way, shape or form. Uh, you know, people always point to uh, the moon and tides and it's like the the tidal forces are so small on a, you know, on a planet level, the tidal forces are enough to create tides, but in an individual, nothing would be being affected. Uh, it's just absolutely not going to be happening. And so not even, not only was there a uh, slideshow on his website, which is still readily available, he actually had Gordon on his show back in 2017 to share her quote unquote views about the quote unquote connection between the stars and your health. The only thing I can say about this is that it is potentially less uh, harmful than some of the other things that he has brought up on his show and has tried to sell to people uh, both as concepts and as actual supplements and such forth. Uh, but, you know, it, I mean, it is actually telling you that, you know, you might be predisposed to this thing. So if you have it, you should probably tell someone. I suppose that's better than, it's really not better than anything. Um, it's it's just very, very distressing. And of course, uh, this is a man who has been tapped to serve on the President's Council on Sports, Fitness and Nutrition. <sighs> I I just really don't even know what to do with this, um, but I think it's important to point out that uh, he has continued to sort of uh, decline in his ability 
to be a person that you should actually trust for medical advice because he has just really gone down the uh, rabbit hole of uh, woo. And so, yeah, definitely um, an unfortunate thing because he, you know, used to at one point uh, be a very good cardiologist, apparently. Uh, but of course, you know, as we've seen with other doctors, uh, Ben Carson, I'm looking at you, uh, just because you are good at one thing does not mean that you are good at other things. Huh. So let's talk about one more medical thing before we break. Uh, so, uh, this is sort of, I'm preemptively thinking this is going to be in the same vein. Uh, so a new paper has come out. And I am almost certain that it will be used by people who are opposed to the HPV vaccine to rally people to the cause of it being dangerous. Now, the article is actually titled, A Lowered Probability of Pregnancy in Females in the USA Aged 25 to 29 Who Received a Human Papilloma Virus Vaccine Injection. Now, that might seem worrying, and it might... You know, you might think, well, yeah, that that does worry me. That would make me more unlikely to get the vaccination. But that's until you begin to read the methodology of the paper outlined in the abstract. You literally don't need to even move into the body of the study. The abstract will absolutely do as long as it's an accurate representation of what happened. So the study looked at data from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, which represented 8 million 25 to 29-year-old women in the U.S. between 2007 and 2014. Of those, approximately 60% of women who had not received the vaccine became pregnant at least once, while only 30% of those who were given the vaccine conceived. In the married cohort, 75% of women who did not vaccinate conceived, as opposed to 50% for the vaccinated group. Now, the big thing we have to notice here is that that is, the, it, that is it. That is all of the information that they looked at. So this data in no way, shape, or form shows why these numbers might be the way they are. This is a classic example of how correlation does not necessarily mean causation. It could be, for instance, that women in the vaccinated cohort were more attentive to their reproductive health overall and were choosing either to delay or to forgo contraception, excuse me, altogether. It could also be, for instance, that all of those women were exposed to chemtrails. I'm not serious. I'm absolutely not serious about that. I'm just saying that there is not enough information to specifically say that this thing is causing the other thing. It could be any number of confounding factors. Now, this study obviously does point to an interesting correlation there. And so the thing is, is that, and what is said in the abstract itself, um, because I didn't bother trying to track down the paper because the abstract really did tell me everything I needed to know. And I don't think that the um, authors really are trying to oversell it themselves. Um, and so they literally say at the end of it, you know, this shows that more research is needed uh, because there might be something here. But the important thing is, is that nothing is actually there at the moment that is scientifically provable. Um, if you do if you look into sort of uh, you know the idea of correlation uh, and causation, there are all sorts of hilarious things that completely and utterly track. Uh, so I think one of them is, and don't this is just off the top of my head. So uh, do not uh, think that this is actually completely it. But I think there's one that basically tracks uh, the rise of organic food and the rise of like. Um, oh, I can't even think about it, what it is now, but, um, you know, there's, there's ones that track almost perfectly and they're completely random. Uh, so like the rise of, uh, you know, organic farming and the rise of, uh, you know, children named Kelsey or something. It's, it's equally ridiculous that, you know, but 
there's a great curve that that matches almost perfectly. And so sometimes things just coincidentally look exactly the same and they are not exactly the same. Uh, now, there have been some case studies that have connected uh, what is called primary ovarian failure uh, to the vaccine, but there is no evidence that this is a widespread problem that is causing a large drop in fertility rates. And so uh, I think it's also a fair point, uh, as one commenter suggested on one of the stories about this paper, uh, many young women are actually struggling to support themselves these days, and so they can't afford to support a child as well. Uh, and it may be that those women actually have, uh, you know, Medicare or something like that, where they were able to get the HPV vaccine as a prophylactic so that they wouldn't have to worry uh, about any, uh, wouldn't have to worry pre presumably about getting ovarian cancer down the road. And so, yeah. All right. We should definitely take a break to do some PSAs, and then we're going to come back and talk about something much more fun. We're going to talk about uh, Italian luthiers and why their violins are so amazing. So hang on for just a second. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Thanks for asking, but I'd rather not send you nude pictures. I'm camera shy. I already said no. Under my clothes, I'm a robot. My webcam is broken. I'm worried they'll get passed around school. I have a rash. I have nudophobia. I have lizard skin. I'm a vampire, so I don't show up in pictures anyways. Your badgering has really killed the mood. When someone is pressuring you to do something you don't want to, how many ways can you say no before they get the message? Let us know at that'snotcool.com. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Looking for an international experience but unable to travel? Consider hosting an adult international student studying English. Maybe from the Congo, Iran, Tibet, Saudi Arabia, Spain, Uganda, Tunisia, India, or Iraq. We need friendly hosts interested in a true cross-cultural interchange, fluent in English, and living within a 15-minute walk or convenient bus ride to downtown Northampton. Join ILI's nonprofit effort to create language and cultural immersion experiences for our students. A stipend offsets costs. For more details, go to www.ili.edu or email amy at ili.edu. We are the International Language Institute of Massachusetts in downtown Northampton. Okay, we are back. And as promised, we're going to talk about violins. So, uh, a new paper has come out talking about the shape and design of uh, violins and how that's tied to human voices. So, modern violins are based largely upon the designs of two Italian luthiers, uh, Andrea Amati and, of course, the more famous Antonio Stradivari. Uh, 
Now, fun fact, luthier means someone who creates stringed instruments. I actually didn't know that until just looking at this story uh, last week. So you you probably did, uh, many of you, uh, but I thought it's a great word. So anyways, the instruments uh, were actually invented by Amadi, uh, but then improved upon by Stradivari. Now, Huan Ching Tai from the Department of Chemistry at National Taiwan University and a team from the university, as well as the Chai Mei Museum, attempted to test the hypothesis that the acoustic properties of violins created by these master luthiers uh, actually mimics the human voice. So what they did was they used speech analysis techniques to analyze the scales of 15 antique Italian violins played by a professional violinist and recorded at the Chime uh, University. They then compared those recordings to the voices of eight men and eight women, ranging in ages from 16 to 30, who sang common English vowels. They found that instruments from Amadi. Uh, from Amadi's 1570 uh, violin and a violin that is was made by Gasparo de Salo in 1560 mimicked male singers. They found, on the other hand, that Stradivarius's violins more closely resembled female voices. They concluded that our data demonstrate that the pioneering designs of Cremonese violins exhibit voice-like qualities in their acoustic output. Uh, and so basically, that is why they are really appealing to us is because uh, they sound like human beings. And I don't know about you, but the violin is definitely one of my favorite uh, instruments. I could pretty much listen to someone play the violin uh, or the fiddle, honestly, uh, all day long. I am completely someone who loves, loves, loves uh, stringed instruments, especially the violin slash fiddle. And so I definitely can see where that uh, would be appealing. Okay, so uh, now let's move on and talk about a story from earlier this week. It was actually reported that paleontologists have found the oldest animal footprints ever discovered. They would have been left by a uh, bilateral animal uh, with paired appendages around 540 million years ago. So the fossil, uh, the fossils were found in the Yangtze Gorges area of southern China. Bilateral animals such as arth arthropods and annelids have paired appendages and are among the most diverse animals today and in the geological past, said co-lead author Dr. Ji Shen uh, from the Nanjing Institute of Geology and Paleontology. They are often assumed to have appeared and radiated suddenly during the Cambrian explosion about 541 to 510 million years ago, although it has long been suspected that their evolutionary ancestry was rooted in the Ediacarian period uh, 635 to 541 million years ago. Until our discovery, however, no fossil record of animal appendages had been found in the Ediacarian. And so the traces were discovered in the Den Ying Formation, which dates to around 551 to 541 million years old. They found burrows and trackways that they suspect are connected due to their proximity. The trackways are irregular, uh, consisting of two rows of imprints arranged in repeated groupings. Now, they suspect that they were most likely left by millimeter-sized uh, bilateral animals. So these are really small. Uh, and so they would have used their paired appendages to raise their body above the water-sediment interface. These trace fossils represent some of the earliest known evidence for animal appendages and extend the earliest trace fossil records of animals with appendages from the early Cambrian to the late Ediacaran period, the paleontologist wrote. The body fossils of the animals that made these traces, however, have not yet been found. Maybe they were never preserved. 
Uh, and so this is super interesting and uh, definitely well worth taking a look at the sort of traces. I mean, Technically, there's not much to see, but it's it's pretty historic to find these amazing remains of these animals. And that's one of the cool things about, uh, you know, tracks and traces. And so you can find a lot of fossilized tracks and traces of animals that may not have actually fossilized. And so you can still kind of figure out what was going on with them. Uh, and I think that that's a really interesting form of study. And of course, we have a huge collection of tracks right here in the valley with our uh, collection of uh, dinosaur footprints and our dinosaur footprints that are still uh, in situ in places like Holyoke uh, at the Dinosaur Footprint uh, Park. And so, yeah. And if you go to the Amherst collection uh, at the Amherst uh, Beninsky uh, Museum, you can actually see that there are other traces there as well. There's uh, a trace that's even just uh, ripples on the um, bottom of a lake. It actually created little mounds and then that um, fossilized or became stone, uh, basically. And so it's really cool. And then they have a bunch of of uh, fossil traces that there are some of them. Um, I know I did a tour once and I was shown one that they they don't know what, what uh, caused, what uh, made the tracks. It's It was probably some sort of insects, uh, insect life, but they don't know because uh, it's a kind of a weird track. And so, yeah, very interesting. Okay, so next I want to talk about photosynthesis. So this is actually a huge deal. Uh, an international group of researchers has actually discovered a new kind of photosynthesis. And so uh, they found that in many cyanobacteria, uh, which is also known as blue-green algae, near-infrared light is actually being used to create energy uh, in addition to the normal visible red light. And so cyanobacteria are often found in shaded conditions such as bacterial mats in Yellowstone and beach rocks in Australia. And so in shaded conditions, there's less uh, available visible light. Now, most organisms that engage in photosynthesis uh, use a green pigment called chlorophyll A. This chemical collects red visible light and uses its energy to create important biochemicals and oxygen. It's basically the, uh, you know, basis of photosynthesis. You take light, the uh, plant takes light and it creates uh, oxygen and important uh, energy products. Now, we had always assumed that this was the only way that photosynthesis worked. It's actually been used as a uh, it has actually been used as a benchmark by astrobiologists to determine whether or not complex life could have evolved on other planets. And so this is a pretty big deal uh, that we are now finding out that this might not be true. And so um, we've known for some time that cyanobacteria have another form of chlorophyll, which is called chlorophyll F. Uh, and so we now know that that chlorophyll F takes over when visible life, light isn't available and instead converts usable energy from near-infrared light. Now, previously, researchers had believed that that chlorophyll F simply collected light. Lead research Lead researcher Professor Bill Rutherford from the Department of Life Sciences at Imperial College London noted that the new form of photosynthesis made us rethink what we thought was possible. It also changes how we understand the key events at the heart of standard photosynthesis. This is textbook changing stuff. Now, that key event is how chlorophylls often termed accessory chlorophylls, are actually performing crucial chemical steps in the uh, production of oxygen and uh, biochemicals. And so it had originally been thought that there was a special pair of uh, chlorophyll 
molecules in the center of the complex that were responsible for that. But they were able to view this new system in a way that had not been visible before. And so uh, they were actually able to see that this was happening in a way that they couldn't before. And so they are pretty convinced that the pattern will hold across all of the types of photosynthesis. Uh, Dr. Dennis Nurnberg, the first author and initiator of the study, said, I did not expect that my interest in cyanobacteria and their diverse lifestyles would snowball into a major change in how we understand photosynthesis. It is amazing what is still out there in nature waiting to be discovered. So that's really cool. Uh, scientists had actually previously known that the cyanobacterium um, Acaria chloris could photosynthesize beyond what is called the red limit. However, they believed that this was an isolated incidence uh, because it had a very specialized adaptation. Acaria chloris actually lives beneath a green sea squirt that blocks out most visible light and therefore led, led left, excuse me, only near infrared available for photosynthesis. And so this new finding represents a third variety. Regular chlorophyll A is used when visible light is available. And then the bacteria switch over to chlorophyll F only when they're in the shade. Co-author Dr. Andrea Fantuzzi, also from the Department of Life Sciences at Imperial, said, Finding a type of photosynthesis that works beyond the red limit changes our understanding of the energy requirements of photosynthesis. This provides insight into light energy use and into mechanisms that protect the systems against damage by light. The discovery of this new version of photosynthesis could lead, for instance, to more efficient crops that are able to use a wider variety of light to produce energy. And of course, it doesn't hurt to simply have discovered something that is textbook changing. All right, so um, that is going to be all for me for tonight. I definitely do want to uh, talk about my last uh, thing, but that will have to wait until next week. And that's about bees and uh, the concept of zero. But uh, that's all the time I have for tonight. So I will be back next week. Have a great week. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.